Welcome to Talking Fußball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and this week we are getting off the mark with a bang. Everybody else is. With me this week, the boom to my bang is Nick Wildhagen. Are you satisfied with the opening weekend of the Bundesliga, Nick? Yeah, I'm, I'm more satisfied than a brand player on a Tuesday morning. You know, read up on your normal football. If you, That's if a you deep cut. Want to know what I'm talking about? But yes, it's good to be back, and it's it's good to have some Bundesliga action once again. And uh, hey, there was a bunch of surprising results, so we should dive into that. I dig it. I dig it. Surprising results, tons of goals. It was classic Bundesliga. We're going to be taking a look, of course, at that uh, a frisky Foles performance, the surprising persistence of Svensonian sorcery on the Rhine, and and of course, a big big day for. For Norwegian football, once again. <laughs> it's coming up all the time. That's for you, Nick. All right, let's kick off talking foosball. First, with, I guess, a, a quick programming note. We're shaking things up a little bit this season at Talking Foosball. The show that you're now listening to is going to get to you faster. It's going to be a quick reaction show recorded in the initial hours after the completion of the match day. We call it Talking Foosball Direct. In the middle of the week, you'll get Talking Foosball Extra. That is a show that's going to have a wider focus. Sometimes it might be about a big news story coming out of the league. Sometimes it might be a single club focus. Sometimes you might get a look at the goings-on in the Zweite Bundesliga. It's kind of our choice. At the end of the week, to prepare you for the match day to come, you'll get Talking Foosball Fantasy with James Thorogood and Flo Reinecke, the best Bundesliga fantasy podcast on earth, except no compromises. Okay, so speaking of big news coming out of the league, we did have some big news, some big sad news on this Sunday. And in fact, this week's Talking Foosball Extra is going to be all about one Gerd Müller. Nick, it's hard to sum the guy up in, in a short time, so I'm glad you're going to put a whole episode to him. <laughs> yes, you, you have to. I mean, he is uh, the striker who has the best uh, game-to-goal ratio in the national team dress. Uh, he was influential in Bayern's title-winning campaigns in the early 70s. He really shaped German football, and he broke a lot of records. I mean, that record that Robert Lewandowski broke last season, the 41 goals, he held that record with the, with the 40 goals for five decades. His numbers are incredible and at the same time he was uh, an unassuming sweet guy who at the same time had a struggle with alcohol and not necessarily always was comfortable in his own skin. So there's a lot to Gert Müller and we'll, we'll explore that on Talking Foosball Extra this week. Yep, yep. He's really an amazing figure. Obviously, the game has moved on from when, when he was playing in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, there's always room for debate about great players of all time. But I think just in terms of pure results, he must be in the conversation for the greatest pure striker of all time, period. I mean, the guy just was an unreal goal machine. And then there's this whole other story, which I, I think you're probably going to get into in Talking Foosball Extra. I'm very excited to hear it. Yeah, I mean, we'll explore his exploits on the pitch and we'll we'll discuss how he was as a person off the pitch as well. So, uh, yeah, there'll be plenty to talk about. Excellent. All right, let's start off Talking Foosball Direct by going directly to the most intriguing result of the week, we've decided. Borussia Dortmund, their display of power 
in their opener against Eintracht Frankfurt. The Schwarzgelben were the only one of the league's three preseason title hopefuls to get off the mark with three points. A fact we will certainly contend with, but let's first contend with Dortmund and <laughs> the fireworks. They put on a real light show in front of their home fans at the Westfalenstadion, a show with one man very much in the starring role, a man who either scored or laid on every single one of the five goals, a man called Erling Holland. Nick, <laughs> tell me what you liked about his day at the office. I, you know, I'm, I'm always struck by the fact how versatile a player he is. He's both, you know, tall, strong, robust, yet at the same time, he is lightning fast. He almost has sort of like the same stature as Carsten Janker, yet his footballing intelligence is so much more developed than Carsten Janker's footballing intelligence ever was back in the 90s and early 2000s. So he knows how to find his teammates, how to put them into action, how to use his body to gain an advantage and then put his teammates onto the right path. And additionally, the guy is also a lethal finisher. So um, I think, strangely enough, I think the only area where he has little ways to go is actually his heading but other than that he is probably one of the most if not the most complete striker in Europe right about now since you have so much to choose from whether it's goals he scored or goals he assisted is there a particular one from Saturday night that uh, really really got your juices flowing I actually like the last goal quite a lot because it's such delicate timing in that counter-attack. And, you know, VAR checking it out, but uh, finding him to be onside, that, I think those those goals give me great satisfaction these days when I, when I find out that a player has been onside. Because, you know, a few years ago, it would have been, ah, you know, maybe it was a couple of centimeters offside, but, you know... We cannot tell. How is there any way of telling? And these days, everything is so particularly uh, accurate in terms of finding out if a player was onside or offside. And, um, you know, seeing these goals gives me actually great satisfaction. Additionally, I I did like the way he, he queued up Royce in the first half as well. So, yeah, I think there were a few good ones to choose from. But uh, obviously, my least favorite was actually the one Torgan Hazard scored because that, I, I think, was Kevin Trapp won't have slept well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, it was Kevin Trapp. There was a lot of uh, miscues to go around on the Eagles' side of the ball. You spoke earlier about Marco Royce and that nice goal he was able to put. And he was also had a hand in a couple of other goals. He had two assists himself, both of Holland's goals set up by Marco Royce. Of course, Giorena, he also had a, a VAR-reviewed goal that ended up standing you know, a lot of wait-and-see action in this game. But I, I did want to talk about Marco Royce for a moment about not only his, uh, you know, contributions to, you know, all of, of Dortmund's goals, but his development, I guess, as a bit more of a, of a take-charge leader. There has been a, a, a sort of a story going around via uh, Marco Rosa, the new Dortmund coach, of course, who spoke with ZDF, German broadcaster, after the game, perhaps on the Aktuelle Sports Studio, I'm not, not certain exactly, saying that, that Royce came to him during a break in play in this game against Eintracht to ask him to execute a tactical shift. I mean, he basically said that since since Dortmund had started with a 4-3-3 in Frankfurt with, with a 3-4-3, after Frankfurt switched their setup to a 4-1-4-1, Royce went over to Rosa and said, we, we need to switch. We, we need to play a 4-2-3-1. That, we can play that with the people who we have on the pitch just now. 
because that will give us better matchups. And Rosa apparently was very happy to go along with that. He says, you know, if my captain is the one out there and he sees something that, you know, he thinks he can take advantage of and, and he can communicate that with, with the team, I'm happy for the captain to take the reins of the tactics. I think that's, you know, if there's one thing that Royce has often been criticized for in the past, it has been a lack of sort of, I don't know, showing himself as, as a sort of vocal and assertive leader, despite the fact that his stature both for, for Dortmund and with Germany, et cetera, has always been very high, but he's never really stood out as a guy who's necessarily going to put himself out there and say like, you know, folks, we're going to do this now. And if that's happening now, that can only be a great thing for Dortmund. Ah, it's kind of, well, with these things, it's always kind of difficult to tell because a lot of these judgments are passed based on the way a personality is, uh, portrayed by the media absolutely absolutely royce has never been the most outspoken the most brash loud player out there let's be honest man he's a bad interview (laughs) not a very good one. well you know he is slightly more entertaining than pain drawing but not by country mall but it doesn't tell you anything about his tactical know-how and how his footballing brain works and what he observes and what he can communicate with his teammates on the pitch. And obviously this is a great example of a player who seemingly has a good nose for tactical decisions as well. And uh, having that uh, as a captain and uh, being sort of the extended arm of your coach on the pitch, it's a must these days in modern football. And uh, I'd be surprised if Rosa would have chosen a guy who who couldn't fulfill that job. I mean, that's basically job description for team captain these days within modern football, really. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I also feel like modern coaches, and certainly Marco Rosa is one, I don't think very many of them have much of a problem at all with any player who they have a certain amount of respect for their experience and, and nows to sort of take charge with this. I feel like the, some of these authority questions that used to exist in football dressing rooms with, with an older generation of coaches, I don't think that there's much wrong with, with players sort of taking the reins. I, I don't think that a lot of the newer coaches have much of a problem with that. I did want to mention before we move on from this game, because I think it's pretty important, not only for Dortmund, but for a lot of clubs, just how much <laughs> the actors on the pitch, you know, the people who are actually taking part in this spectacle, seemed really evidently excited to be playing in front of fans. They had 25,000 people in the Westfalenstadion. You know, after the game, Holland was, you know, really effusive about the, the goosebumps he got playing in front of fans again, feeling the love from this group that he, you know, was basically <laughs> separated from for an entire season. I think we're going to see a lot of really endearing stuff in these first several weeks of the season when when players are getting energized again. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It might just be me, or I, I, I do think that the first few matches that I've watched have been more intense challenges, more intense duels, more running. I mean, the intensity has been notched up a level, and I think you can relate that directly to the spectators coming back to the stands. But if the stats are going to back me up, I don't know. But it's just what I felt from watching those first few matches, and and, and if that in fact is true, it would be a great thing. But anyways it's it's great to have fans back in the stadium and 
Not that crappy fake TV noise. Yeah, yeah. Shame on the broadcasters who leaned on that a little too heavily uh, throughout last season. Incidentally, speaking a little bit of an intensity boost, I don't know if this falls precisely into that category, but Erling Holland had his fastest sprint ever in, in that game against Eintracht. Very close to 36 kilometers per hour, which is, you know, the fastest so far in this this young Bundesliga season. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if he can go a little faster still. <laughs> to have such a large man moving at such a fast pace is, is quite incredible. And uh, talk about Norwegians, Jens Petterhoege got a goal for Eintracht Frankfurt as well. The uh, uh, Gebnis cosmetic goal towards the end there. I think he is a he's a really good get by Eintracht Frankfurt. I've watched him uh, quite a bit here in Norway when he was playing for Bude Glimt. He didn't have the best of times over there at RC Milan before joining Eintracht Frankfurt. But I, I was actually asked by Hessenschau, a local TV program or local broadcaster in, in the Frankfurt area, to talk a little bit about him. And, and they jotted down my thoughts and published them on their website. So if you want to get to know him a little bit better, I suggest you go over to their website and uh, press on the translate button if you don't speak any German. Nice one. Nice one. We should all do that. I suppose we should probably start talking now about a couple of those other games, which, you know affected the teams who went into this season thinking that they had a chance to win the league. First and foremost, that is is Bayern München. They've won the last nine league titles, of course, but they find themselves a little unsatisfied with the way things started out. Kreuzes at the Zebenstrasse. Erste Krise. Yeah, they, they started off the season okay. They got a 1-1 draw at Borussia Mönchengladbach, which, considering both Gladbach's general strength at home and, and Bayern's general difficulties in Mönchengladbach shouldn't necessarily be krisenmäßig, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's certainly not the start they were looking to get off to. I mean, it, it was a good game. Alessand Playa scored early for the Foles. Jan Zomer, man, he looked like the guy we saw absolutely rip things in half in uh, Switzerland, this summer in the Euros. He kept them in the game under some pretty heavy assault from Bayern in the you know, the latter part of the first half and the, the, the first part of the second half. But the, the, the table did turn again and the, uh, the recordmeister were, I think, quite lucky not to concede at least one penalty on a couple of clumsy challenges from Dio Upamakano on uh, Marcus Turam in the area. Um, you know. I mean, there were so many people on Twitter saying that against any other team, Borussia Mönchengladbach would have had two penalties. Yeah. And I'm not going to say that that is true, but... All I'm going to say is that Christian Dingert, he must have been ordering some food and the kebab guy did a poor job at jotting down his order at the time. Those two challenges, I mean, they were coming thick and fast. That that happened within a couple of minutes of play. And I think, you know, maybe it was an online sort of arrangement that Christian Dingert, who is, you know, getting older, maybe he didn't know how to, you know, service his Liferando. I mean, something must have been going on because uh, at least the last one for me was a clear-cut penalty and clear and obvious mistake if we want to, you know, use that bar to climb over for penalties to be given or to be retracted in terms of them having to be a clear and obvious mistake because the last call definitely was a clear and obvious mistake and it should have been a penalty. The first one, I think, sort of was crossing the line, but... Uh, I can't be persuaded in the other direction if you make a tough self. You spoke earlier about, about uh, you know, all the sort of uproar on Twitter, which, of course, 
it's opening night. There's a lot of extra eyes on the league. But it was interesting to me to see which people thought which penalty shout was stronger. Because <laughs> I personally thought that the first one was was more of, of a nailed-on penalty. I, I feel like he made contact both high and low, whereas I felt the second one was a little bit – maybe it's just me feeling that, that, that it was slightly cynical. It was a player who got between the ball and the man and then allowed himself to get knocked into, which, you know, I, I can't argue that that's a, that's a great way to earn yourself a penalty sometimes. But I felt like the first one was really legit, you know, a, a defender both impeding and, you know, sort of throwing a player off of his, his line. Basically. I mean, what we can agree upon, all, all and every one of us, is that if the referee would have blown for – both penalties, VR wouldn't have stepped in and said, you have to take that back. Yep, yep. I think because that's fair. both of them would have stood. Yep. Yeah, interestingly, and, and you know, uh, there's, a, there's a whole lot of German football pundits, you know, the, the, the Mario Baslers and Dieter Hamans and one I, that I generally don't pay a lot of attention to because they don't have a lot of interesting things to say. But a guy who is often in that category, Stefan Effenberg, apparently was on Double Pass, the German discussion program earlier this fine Sunday, uh, suggesting that, that the Bundesliga should bring in a challenge system for VAR, you know, similar perhaps to what, what happens in either the NFL or the NBA, where a coach is allowed a certain number of times per game or per half to directly challenge a call on the pitch to sort of force VAR to look at it. I personally like it. That's a way of making VAR challenges a little bit more precious, like you only get a certain number, and it also gives a certain sense of agency for a team as opposed to one of the things that's most frustrating about the way the basement in Cologne <laughs> intervenes or doesn't intervene is that it has a certain, you know, deus ex machina, like, oh, will it or won't it? It's We can't control these things. <laughs> Whereas a challenge, it's just like, you know, if, if, if Adi Hutto thinks it's a bad call, he can throw down the flag and see what happens. Instead of getting booked. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, uh, what really has got me riled up about VAR, I mean, there was a match between Dusseldorf and Werder Bremen a few years ago when both both teams were still playing the Bundesliga. And Dusseldorf were awarded the handball penalty when a cross came in and it sort of hit Niklas Moisander on the right arm as it was slightly stretched out. And, you know, VAR stepped in, said that was a penalty. And um, second half, uh, Werder crosses in a ball. Dusseldorf player has his arm stretched out really far away from his body. Ball hits the arm. Nothing happens. Crickets. Crickets. And at that point, you think, hang on. The first one was maybe a penalty if you go by the letter of the law, whilst the second one was a clear-cut penalty. But you cannot step in for that one. So some of these decisions have sort of struck me as arbitrary at some point. So giving some control to coaches and to teams might not be a bad idea. Yep, yep. You know, some of the um, both people on, on Twitter and uh, announcers during the Bundesliga World Feed, some of the things I've been watching on, on television, have already remarked after one match day that it seems like the Kölner Keller, the basement in Cologne, is being a lot more circumspect when it comes to intervening or suggesting and overturning, that it seems like maybe 
there is a general change in philosophy, but you know, I don't want to have to read tea leaves. I don't want to have to resort to like Sovietology to figure out what their <laughs> policy is. Let's just let's just have the challenge system. If you don't have any more challenges, you can't challenge it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I want to talk quickly before we move on from this game about the debutantes. We had each team had a uh, a fullback getting their first full Bundesliga game. Julian Nagelsmann of Bayern decided to start uh, Josip Stanisic. He's, you know, been basically a Bayern Zwei player for the last couple of years. He was a, he played right back for Bayern and Gladbach played Joe Scally. Yes, yes, of course. New York's finest, Joe Scally, at left back. Stanisic, uh, you know, had some betting in difficulties in the early going. Scally, however, I thought he was spectacular. Really, really good. Really composed on the ball. Pretty aggressive against it. He was adventurous going forward. He had some nice diagonal balls. I think he could be a really useful player for them. Yeah, and, uh, you know, now that Oscar Vent is gone, and uh, really, you know, Gladbach, that places up for grabs more than ever because Vent, obviously, um, when he was fit, he was playing most of the time. And uh, now a young upstart who was sort of introduced to German culture and German football through the second team at Borussia Mönchengladbach, now it's time to shine. And at age 18, wow, I mean, sky's the limit. If, if he adjusts <laughs> to the speed of the Bundesliga as well as he did during that match, wow, he, Gladbach are going to have a lot of fun. Yep. All right. Well, I guess we don't really need to address Bayern only drawing a game as constituting a, a crise, really. I, mean, I think there's still plenty of time for Julian and the boys to turn things around. Let's talk, however, maybe slightly more seriously about uh, RB Leipzig, or maybe just about Mainz, because Mainz really deserve a lot of plaudits after the performance they put in on Sunday. It's kind of crazy. I mean, Mainz they beat the odds again and again and again last season. They beat the odds so handily that by the end of the season, they weren't even beating the odds anymore. They were the odds on favorites going into lots of games that they played. They were legit good. This season looked promising enough. You know, I think there, there was a, a sense that there was a chance that they could push on and, and continue in that vein. But they had a COVID outbreak this week leading up to the game. They had several key players in self-isolation as well as, you know, a number of coaches. It really had a big effect on this team and that kind of messed with their starting lineup. They left their bench short, but it didn't matter. <laughs> they won the game 1-0 at home to RB Leipzig. Musa Niakate's first half goal and a whole lot of running against the ball was all they needed to take three points. Speaking of running, Nick, we talked before the season started about how RB we're going to be just running, 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 playing a very vertical game this season under under Jesse Marsh, who famously favors that sort of tactic. But today it was Mites who's who's running and sort of energy and effort really proved the stronger and, and got them the win. What do you make from this start from Mindset as well as from, from Leipzig? <laughs> well, I mean, there is a sort of an interesting subplot here in the fact that Bo Svensson was coaching Liefering, which is the feeder team of RB Salzburg, and uh, RB Salzburg was at the same time obviously coached by uh, Jesse Marsh. They were assistants under Rangnick as well a couple of years so ago. So there you go. So they know each other well. They know each other well. So it seems like that uh, Bo Svensson got the better of his mate there, and what I have to say is uh, what really stuck with me from this match is that uh, Musa Nikate, he had sort of a match winner's performance but at both ends 
defense of the pitch. I think he his goal was crucial. It wasn't necessarily a pretty goal, but hey, when you tap the ball over the line, that's all you need to do. And at the other end of the pitch, he blocked shots, he blocked crosses. He was always in the right position, marshaled his troops to keep the lines tight. And behind him, there was one Robin Zentner who pulled off a two or three really good saves to, you know, not concede any goals. So yes, Mainz were well worth their win, but they were also a bit fortunate because they relied heavily on two really brilliant performances by, well, basically their best player right now, Nikate, I think is, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes to a site like RB Leipzig at the end of the season, because I think that's where his potential is. And Zentner, who really had a one of his better matches in the Bundesliga. Yes, Leipzig, they do like their francophone defenders. So uh, I can't imagine he's not already on their radar. All right, we are back with part two of Talking Foosball Direct. Part two is the part where we move a little faster. We go through the remaining six games of the match day with with pretty brief discussions in each part. And we have a little surprise in store, a little a little brief guest giving us some direct insight about his team and what expectations are for the new season. Okay, we're going to start with a few games that had pretty big goal tallies in them. Ones that, you know, will pump up the teams who won and really deflate the teams who were on the wrong end of that. First, VfB Stuttgart. They got a 5-1 win against Kreuter Fürth. <laughs> what a warm welcome Kreuter Fürth were given back into the Erste Bundesliga. You know, I, don't, I guess the one silver lining is uh, Jamie Leveling, finally getting the clover leaves on the board in the Bundesliga. That one at the end of the 5-1 scoreline came, I think, three minutes into injury time. No, they all count. No, they do. They do. They do. And, and you know, leveling, it, was this just a bad day for Fürth? Are they actually under-leveled for, for the boss fight that is the, uh, the Erste Bundesliga? I remember listening to the conference on German radio where one of the commentators said, well, Greuterfurt have been away from the Bundesliga for a decade now, but it feels like they always were that team that all the other 17 teams were happy to play against because they're such whipping boys and they always have been, haven't they? And that was the introduction that Greuterfurt were given at the start of the second half. So, I, you know, going by the squad, yes, I think they're underleveled. I don't think they'll get much joy. They've done tremendous work to get to the Bundesliga, but going by their funds and going by their resources, this is not a club made for Bundesliga level, I'm sorry to say. So they need to they need to grind out some side missions and get some XP, see if they can get some better gear, and maybe next week they'll be in better shape. Let's hope so. Although, to be fair, they weren't the only team to get whipped. I mean, we already talked about Eintracht mm. earlier in the show. And Augsburg, they got beat 4-0 at home by TSG Hoffenheim. I don't necessarily want to just, you know, crap on Augsburg. I would prefer perhaps maybe to think about Hoffenheim and their good start. I mean, this was a – obviously, anytime you win 4-0 away is a great result. But an interesting wrinkle with this one is, you know, the guy who's usually their their most reliable goal scorer – you know, in Andre Kramaric, didn't score any goals, but got 
a hat trick of assists. I feel like that portends well that like, you know, he is a streak scorer. We all know this. But even when he's not scoring, sometimes he can disappear a little bit. He disappeared by no means in this game. Yeah, I mean, if he discovers this dimension of his game that he actually can put his teammates into good positions on a regular, more regular basis, then uh, Hoffenheim suddenly uh, turn out to be threat that should be reckoned with. As for Augsburg, yeah, it's it's one match. All, I think all three of us tipped them away to go down in our season preview show. But uh, So, so far it's looking good for that tip, but let's not, you know, celebrate too early on our tips becoming reality. Oh yeah, you know, when as soon as you let go of those tips, you know, you just gotta you gotta let go, let that little birdie fly. <laughs> I have no idea how that's gonna end up, <laughs> and, and see if it comes back, putting egg on your face. Exactly. Okay, egg egg on face, egg on face. I have to have a bit of egg on face uh, after <laughs> the the final match of the uh, of the weekend. It really looked like it was gonna go the other way. I mean, Cologne went down to a you know. Stefan Jovetic goal just five minutes into this game. Hertha were looking very good for the first 20, 30 minutes. And then, you know, something happened. I mean, I think because many of us have, have been conditioned to see Cologne as a team who fold pretty easily. I don't think they won a single game after going down last season. But something has changed. And I guess maybe it's, it's you know, Stefan Baumgart. Perhaps it's um, the fans back in the stadium, which it's the flat, the, it's the flat, flat cap. Yeah, when you when you got a flat cap guy in charge, uh, anything is possible. Yeah, I mean, we talked about Dortmund and their fans in the stadium earlier, and and I think you know they're part of a small group, Cologne, Union. There might be a couple others we could mention that they just have a little bit extra in terms of home support, and I, I feel like maybe that'll help you. <laughs> find the wherewithal to, to come back from going a goal down. I don't know. But I thought it was particularly good for Cologne to get Anthony Modest on the board. This is a guy who, you know, how many years ago now is it? Four years ago? Five years ago? That he was, you know, an absolute killer of a goal scorer for Cologne and then had sort of fallen off and, you know, went away on loan and has sort of be- became a forgotten man. If he can start scoring again, that could be a real dangerous thing for Cologne, especially if you also get two goals from Florian Kainz. And he has one of the best songs written about him. Would you like to sing it for us? The song? No, <laughs> I don't. Uh, but if you go onto YouTube and you, you, I don't know, put in Modest Cologne fans song, you might get it because it's 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 a it's a it's a great song. And um, yeah, to see Florian Kainz score a brace. I've seen him try, try his best at Werder Bremen so many times. What usually came out of that was not an awful lot of good football. And this time around, he even scored with his head. I think I've never, to be a half, you know, hand on heart, I don't think I've ever seen the guy score a header. I don't know, maybe in some friendly against a seventh tier side or something, but I've never seen him score a header at Bundesliga level. So uh, that was strange. Uh, but as, as for Herter... They conceded from the first shot on goal, and from there on out, it really turned around. And that was disappointing because the team had everything, had the entire match in their hands. As they were getting the shots on goal, they were creating the chances. They could have been up by maybe one more goal when Cologne got that equalizer. And once they conceded that equalizer, you know, they fell apart. And and that truly must be disappointing for both you as a Hertha fan and, of course, Paul Dardai, who 
is coaching Hota at the moment. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm gonna take Pyle's feelings into account probably more than more than mine. I mean, does this result actually change? Does it move the needle in any direction for either of these teams for you, or is this you know it's too early? It's too early for me. Let's let's move on to the other Berlin side. Dig it. Union, they're the other Berlin side. They had a better day at the office on match day one. They got a 1-1 draw at home to Leverkusen. And Nick, we have a bit more about where things stand with the old pharmaceuticals and, and, and their new coach and what expectations are, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eric Brewer from the Neverkusen podcast has recorded a little primer about uh, who the new guy on the sideline at Bayer Leverkusen is, what we can expect from him. Uh, with that in mind, over to you, Eric. Hi, everyone. Eric Brewer from the Neverkusen podcast here. And I wanted to take this opportunity to briefly introduce you to the new trainer at Bayer Leverkusen, Leverkusen, Gerardo Seoane Castro. Fans of the Swiss League, the Europa League, and haircuts with extreme side parts will know this successful coach, who since taking over at Young Boys Bern in 2018, has only won the Swiss League on three consecutive occasions since. And if that wasn't enough to turn the heads of Bayer management on its own, Seoane also guided the Swiss team into the round of 16 in last year's Europa League, his side making short work of a disjointed Leverkusen club that was about a month away from sacking Peter Bosch. In the 2019-20 season, he won the Swiss double and has basically tasted nothing but success throughout his time with YBB. After coming over from Luzern, where he made almost 110 appearances for the first team after starting his playing career there with the youth team. He is considered, rightfully so, an up-and-coming young trainer in Europe who has previously played out of a primarily 4-4-2 system. But as we've seen in the early days at Leverkusen, he has already had to adapt to an attacking roster occupied by target men like Patrick Schick and Lucas Alario, and he's favoring a 4-2-3-1 that plays to some of the strengths of the roster, including pacey wingers, and weaknesses such as our central midfielders having to cover for a sometimes suspect back line. Two competitive matches is too early to make any kind of pronouncements or predictions, really, but enthusiasm for the new trainer is clearly high after what you might charitably call two positive results. And of course, Leverkusen fans will be hoping that Seoane can replicate his Swiss magic in Germany, especially when it comes to his trophy hall there. The last time Bayer lifted any trophy of note was 1993, so the fans are ready to taste some success again. Let's hope he can guide us there. Back to you guys. Thanks. All right. Lovely, lovely, Eric. Thank you very much. Nick, anything about this game give you any sort of feels? I mean, Taiwo Awani, early goal, got off the mark fast. Big money for a club like Union. That's probably a nice thing, right? It is, it is. And, you know, I mean, Union Berlin have been uh, rather active in the transfer window. I mean, they're the most active side. Uh, so they're sort of a bit like uh, what the Germans would call a Wundertüte. You just don't know what to expect of them just yet. Are they like a box of chocolates? You know, like one of those boxes that include both like, you know, the really caramelly, salty stuff, but also the ones with coconut that really just suck. Dude, you don't like coconut? What's wrong I, with you? I, I do like coconut. I just don't like it in chocolates. I mean, oh my what's, lord, what's it called? Good, the milk good bounty dark? Bounty dark. That is a crime against humanity in my book. Oh, enjoy, I, man. You know, we, we, we have to disagree on that one. I'll, I'll take it. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, um, okay. We're gonna we're gonna move on. <laughs> we're gonna agree to disagree on this. Yeah, we got a couple of quiet-ish games to round out the show. Wolfsburg they got a one-nil win over Bochum. I mean, you might have thought that this was a, a, a quiet game, like it was on on the scoreboard, but actually it was it was bananas. <laughs> the Wolves hit the woodwork twice in the first two minutes, and uh, you know the second time. 
they hit the woodwork was actually because Robert Tesha handled the ball on the goal line. He got sent off. Vout Fakehorst took a penalty, failed to convert it at the end of that sequence. You know, Manuel Riemann actually saved it, so it wasn't completely Fakehorst's fault. It was an okay penalty. Fakehorst eventually did get his goal, but, you know, Manuel Riemann, is this going to be another Stefan Ortega situation where a guy who, you know, kind of comes from off the radar to be a goalkeeper who can save the bacon of an otherwise not terribly good team? I certainly think the Wolfsburg would have wanted to have won this game by more, but probably don't really care that they didn't. But I can't imagine that Bochum don't feel a little bit good coming out of this game, only losing 1-0, and and playing a team like Wolfsburg, you know, tougher than some people might have expected, especially with being a man down for about 87 minutes. Yeah, indeed. And uh, as for Riemann, he is a bit of a club legend over there at Bochum. He's played for them 175 matches before then. He played for Sandhausen. So um, if you haven't heard of him, probably you shouldn't feel bad for yourself because um, he's sort of been an obscure Bundesliga 2 player, really. Um, yeah, I think Bochum, uh, they sold themselves uh, well in this match um, they didn't necessarily ask an awful lot of questions of Wolfsburg but the goalkeeper and their defense uh, held up for most of the match Wolfsburg got a few decent chances but didn't convert them and uh, all in all uh, Bochum are probably looking forward to show what they're capable of featuring 11 men for the entire match next weekend yeah yeah I think that's a great way to face forward and consider just how good you might be in a home match against Mainz, which is who they have next week. Uh, finally, we had a game in which nobody scored. It's always a little bit sad when we have games like that. Armenia, Bielefeld, and SC Freiburg. The aforementioned Stefan Ortega, you know, Armenia goalkeeper, killed it again, made uh, quite a few saves in this game for, you know, a team who were probably under assault more than they were uh, going forward in this game. So good on him. Yeah, I mean, for Armenia, the, these matches, getting a point is perfectly fine. That's what they need. They need to grind out results against sites like Freiburg and other mid-table sites uh, in order to stay in the league. And uh, getting off with a not a win, but with a draw is a decent start to the season. So um, now they're looking at how they can get 39 more points from the next 33 matches. And as for Freiburg, uh, well, they are probably one of those outside bets for the Europa League, but this isn't a disaster because all this club really wants to do is uh, stay in the league anyways. Yeah, I'm doing some math here for you, Nick. If you want to get 39 points from 33 matches, all you have to do is get 1.1818181818182 points per game. Well, there you go. That, that's the bar. That's the bar, the bar for Bochum. Now let's see if they can climb <laughs> under that bar. I mean, many teams have before them. <laughs> well, that's, that's, our, that's our bizarre digression for the week. <laughs> okay, that is it for this edition of Talking Foosball, which was produced, as always, by Aiden Rantoul. Super great to get off to uh, you know a great start in the new season with you, Nick. Yeah, it's it's always fantastic to to talk some foosball, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to to the rest of the season because I think there is going to be some uh, twists and turns that are going to keep us very much entertained. Yeah, yeah, surprises in store, maybe even a big one. You can follow Nick on Twitter at Norm Musings, of course. If you want to contact me, I'm at Mr. Matt Herman. 
our podcast at Talking Foosball. We're always available. Do subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Do leave us a rating. Shout us out to your friends in real life person time. Talking Foosball Extra, as we mentioned, will be coming up in a few days. Talking Foosball Fantasy with uh, JT and Flo. They are back in action later in the week to set you up for match day two. Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all. Thank you.